human being if you work with your hands. And that comes from their understanding or worldview of form over matter. In other words, it's, the, it's our thoughts. It's the lofty things that are of value. So the ideal world, the mental world, the philosophy world, uh, that's what we want to seek after. So if you work with your body and your hands in menial labor, that's just a, a second-class expression of the real thing, the ideal. So all of that effort that he put into was not appreciated. He also didn't charge for his teaching. And unfortunately, which was a, a noble thing to do, but unfortunately in that culture, if you didn't charge for your teaching, the assumption was you don't have anything worth saying. Because if it was worth saying, you would charge money for it. Though he's facing all of these challenges, also if he did receive money for it, another cultural practice, and we, we get this in our culture sometimes too, is that if I put a big chunk of money towards your ministry or the efforts uh, that you are pursuing, then I kind of have you by the strings. Because there is a certain, in that culture and others, an obligation now, since I have generously given to you my money to help you out, you have an obligation to serve me in some way. So there's strings attached. And the Apostle Paul can't do that. His conscience and his teachings won't allow him to do that because the gospel's free. It's for people of every place, every nation, every people group. And so he, he has that, and he doesn't want to be controlled by any person or any group because they say, well, look, without our support, we're going to pull the plug, and then you're doomed. So all of his very, very noble efforts of following the, the, the self, tremendous self-sacrifice, the sweat from his brow to show Christian love to this people group unfortunately was not taken in that light because of the way they looked at how life works, because of their world view. So let me read with uh, a few scriptures to you when we talk about this practice of putting ourselves under God's instruction. By the way, I purposely used the term sacred scriptures this morning. You know, what, what we look at when we read Corinthians, we are reading from sacred writings. The Greeks didn't have sacred writings. The, the conclusions that they came to, as far as what's right and wrong, what do you value, how life works, came from their own minds. They were generated from their idea of reason and thinking and philosophy and observation and logic. So it generated from them, whereas we are a people of the book. We believe that God revealed these things and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit pen words in our language that we can understand, that can be transferred into our, or translated into our language that we can understand. They didn't come from us scratching our heads and our group think tanks about, yeah, this is true and this isn't. This came from God. And that changes things. So even humility, acts of humility, or so Paul was a humble person according to Scripture. But according to other worldviews, his actions would be looked at as humiliating. What are you doing? 
on your knees serving other people like that. You're humiliating yourself. Whereas in the Christian view, that's a way to exalt Christ because we, we don't hold ourselves in such high regard that we're, we're too good for certain things. We're servants of the Most High God. So there's clashes of worldview that happens all over the place every day. Even in our world, we'll talk a little bit in our, our culture, we'll talk a little bit that, to, about that towards the end. And yet, with all of this struggling and these challenges, Paul doesn't say, okay, in order to reach you, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to stop emulating my Savior Christ. That's not at all what he does. He says in verse 12, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So there's different terms, different way of understanding ministry and servanthood and so forth. But he's not going to change his way. Why? Because he has found the way, the truth, and the life. You don't change truth. You don't bend it. And it's sad that they, they misunderstood all of his efforts. It's very disappointing. But he does not change the standards from the sacred writings that he follows. He doesn't conform himself to the ways of the world. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world. He wrote to the Romans. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might understand the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. See, it's God. Our information, our knowledge, our wisdom comes from God. So he doesn't allow himself to bend in that way as uncomfortable as it is for him. And the bottom line is, he has a heart for them. He's willing to give us all and to serve them because he wants them to experience the joy and the freedom in Christ that the gospel holds. So he stays in there and he, and he fights and he, he puts himself out of his spiritual comfort zone, as you know, and I won't talk much about this, in that he has to boast about himself. You know, because they are failing to see what's obvious, what's true. He has to, like, hold it before him. He doesn't want to show him his muscles. He doesn't want to do that because he sees it. Well, that's kind of, you know, okay, I got big muscles, all right, but I don't really want to fawn him around. But because they fail to see his spiritual muscles, in a sense, he has to bring them to the forefront so they can see what is obvious. It's the same kind of thinking uh, in our text this morning. He says, I will continue to do what I'm going to do. And why is that? In verse 12, just kind of a segue, to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, the false teachers, they work on the same terms as we do. And the Apostle Paul has to show them they do not work on the same terms. We are not the same kind of teachers. We have a different mes message. We have a different style of ministry. And so our text today will basically be pointing out just how different they are in their ministry method and their lifestyle. That is the Apostle Paul and the false teachers that have come into the Corinthian camp and church and made all of these promises and undermined 
the authority and the teachings of the apostle. So beginning in verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must be, I must say, we were too weak for that. Yes, he's being facetious there. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. So if you want to go toe-to-toe, let's go toe-to-toe. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with, for greater labors, for more imprisonments with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. There's the Apostle Paul. That's what he would consider boasting. That's his way of boasting. Now technically it's not boasting at all. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most humble displays that you ever find of somebody boasting. You see how... He never really gets arrogant about it at all. He stays awkward because he knows his place in life. Arrogance is when you forget your place in life. And you think you're something that you're not. And as much as Paul has accomplished, he knows his place in life. And he just stays there. He keeps the the proper posture and attitude about himself. I'm a servant of Christ. All these things that I have accomplished was just Christ in me. I'm just a human being saved by grace. It's God's power. Matter of fact, I'm weak. I'm a weak vessel. So any greatness that comes out of me is God's power. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. Corky mentioned this morning one of the differences in false teaching, false teachers versus true gospel teachers is who's getting the glory? Like, what are they really pointing to? Are they talking about themselves and pointing to themselves? Making themselves look good? Or do you barely even know they're there and they're talking greatly about 
Christ and God. These kind of things come out. Our, our true motives come out. So Paul says he's boasting, but you know, technically speaking, that's, if that's boasting, it's about the most humble boasting that you will ever see. And I want to highlight or at least briefly speak about Paul's humility because humility is, um, talk about worldview and culture, humility is fading out in our culture. Like there are people that really, young people that don't really even understand what it is, what it means to be humble. And what is displayed, I think, for the most part in our culture, at least in the media and so forth, is arrogance, it's pride. Our sports world has been taken over by it. It's almost like who can be the most arrogant person or athlete. So it's important to understand humility's place. Let me read you something from, uh, a quote from John Piper in his book, Future Grace. Humility's not a popular human trait in the modern world. It's not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in valedictory speeches or commended in diversity seminars or listed with corporate core values. And if you go to the massive self-help section of your sprawling mall bookstore, you won't find many titles celebrating humility. The basic reason for this is not hard to find. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society about as often as we find God applauded. In my local newspaper, he writes, uh, recently a guest editorial captured the atmosphere of our time that asphyxiates humility. This is what the article said. There are some who naively cling to the nostalgic memory of God. The average churchgoer takes a few hours out of the week to experience the sacred, but the rest of the time he is immersed in a society that no longer acknowledges God as an omniscient and omnipotent force to be loved and worshipped. Today we're too sophisticated for God. We can stand on our own. And we're prepared and ready to choose and define our own existence. Piper adds, Now in this atmosphere, humility cannot survive. It disappears with God. When God is neglected, the runner-up God takes his place. Namely, man. And that by definition is the opposite of humility. Namely, the haughty spirit called pride. So the atmosphere we breathe is hostile to Humility. That's a culture clash. The Apostle Paul and his biblical understanding and wanting to be like the God that saved him hits a world that is arrogant, hits a people group that doesn't think along those same terms. It was the the Greeks that in their own wisdom and trying to figure life out and how we got here and what's our purpose came to the conclusion that man is the measure of all things. So everything important is going to come from my mind. That's going to clash. If you want to understand why we have culture clashes in our country, it has a lot to do with that. 
Where do we get our values? Do we get to just decide on our own with our think groups or our smart people the value of human life? When it starts? When it ends? Or are these things already decided for us and we do better to find them and cherish them? Now, where would the Hebrews look for wisdom? They're not going to sit around in groups and scratch their heads or be the thinking man. No, thinking is, is a part of it. They would go to the book of wisdom, right? God generously gave us books of wisdom. And as Peter said, we have everything we know we need pertaining to life and godliness. That's in God's word. He doesn't tell us what credit card you should get, whether you should get the, the zero interest or, or whatever. You don't find that, but you find all the principles, all the important things of life that we need to know to love and worship God and therefore enjoy our lives. Piper nailed that. See, humility, it's a, it's a, it's a worldview that comes from Scripture. And when you don't find God, your humility is hard to find. So in our culture, if... Humility is hard to find. What else is going to be hard to find? Worshippers of the one and only true God. The presence of God. What we value. I mean, to be here this morning, for you to be here this morning, communicates in, 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 in part that you value this. You value this for whatever reason. You have your own reasons. But there are people that are not in church this morning for a variety of reasons. Uh, they may value watching TV more. They may value work. Some are at work during this hour. Uh, they, they, may, they value different things. But you're here. You have a belief system. You decided that on this particular day at this time, whatever sacrifice it took to get yourself out of the bed, to get your family, to get the kids... Get your husband, whatever, here, it was worth it. It's because of what you believe and how you think life works. And rather than worshiping other gods, which other people are doing this morning, you value the God who has revealed himself to you as the one and only true God. That's your worldview. And we want a culture here, a new covenant fellowship culture that honors God and holds God and His Word in the highest regard. That's what we're, we're endeavoring to accomplish. Exalt God, build each other up, edify the saints, and evangelize the lost. Paul's not giving himself uh, the credit. He gives it to God. Man in his arrogance... We hold it for ourselves and we take the credit for us. But what Paul's not going to do, he can't do this. He can't idly sit by and watch people who have said they embrace the gospel. He planted a church there. He can't idly sit by and watch them be swooned and, and wished away by false teachers. So he's got to speak up. And he's got to tell it like it is. And he has to show his muscles if you want to put it that way. So how does he make his case? How does he highlight the, the big difference between the false teachers 
and his ministry. What, what's, the, what's the deal clencher? What credentials? He, he wants to highlight his ministry excess, right? Well, I stand amazed at this approach. Like I'm, I'm reading this, if this is what really Paul's trying to accomplish, he's trying to win them back and show the differences. He doesn't even mention things that I would be very quick to mention as far as ministry success. If you want to see the difference between my ministry and somebody who's false, say, or anybody else, I want to point out the best features. Is that what Paul does? Not at all. So by today's standards, what would, we, what would we perhaps point out to show that we are God's true servant? Well, one thing, I think that even in our culture, these aren't necessarily bad things, but I'm just going to show you Paul doesn't take this approach. We might say, well, what's the sign of a true servant of God? He's a sign that he's really blessed. Ministry success. We might say, well, how many, soul, how many people has he led to Christ? So I can tell you one difference between this false teacher, those guys, they haven't even led anybody to Christ. They just came in here and they're trying to steal you away. But I led you to Christ. I got all these souls under my hat. Now we, as believers, hold people who are evangelists or people who witness a lot in high regard. We'd say that's great ministry success. People like Billy Graham. Now we hold him in high regard because he's a man was a man of great integrity, but also because look at the ministry success. Look how many souls that he led to Christ. Where's that in this list of credentials? He doesn't go there. Another true mark of spiritual success, we might say today, we are highly impressed with the size of churches. The numbers, mega churches, they're the thing, they're the fashion, they're the fad, mega churches. And we look at these big churches and we say, wow, they must be doing something right. Look at that spiritual success. And we want to perhaps try to emulate that. It's, it's like a measure or social platforms in ministry. Look how many followers you have in your teaching ministry or your social platform you must really be blessed by God and favored by God because other people aren't doing so well so that's a, a measure or a sign uh, some circles say in the prosperity gospel they might measure spiritual success in how much money you're bringing in if you have your own private jet you must really be blessed by God if you have mansions and so forth you can go one or other, that's because God's blessing is on your ministry. That's an impressive way to look at things or measurement there. If you're driving a Rolls Royce versus a smart car, you know, you, you just must, must not be very successful if you come to church in, as a pastor in a smart car. You can barely fit into it. So, if he's not going to tout those things about himself, and by the way, the Apostle Paul, as we know, can put us all to shame in this area. He has lots of ministry successes. I mean, he could have boasted about the miracles that he performed alone and put these guys in their place, right? So if he doesn't tout that size or measurement of spiritual success, where 
does he take it? Well, he takes it to all his places of suffering. If you want to see a true difference between the false and the real, let's consider this. Look what I've endured. Why is this important? Because one thing that Scripture teaches is that there's a difference in those who are in it for the right reason, to serve Christ, that truly love the people they're ministering to, and then those that are in it for themselves. And as Jesus said, you know, the good shepherd, he lays down his life. The hired hand, what happens at the first sign of trouble or suffering? Hey, where'd he go? He's gone. He was in it for himself. Paul looks at his hardships as his achievement. So, it's, it's, it's his hardships. Um, it's what he's lost, not what he's gained. It's his peril, not his prosperity. It's his faithfulness, not his fortune. So there's nothing really attractive about this list. As a matter of fact, these are the very things I want to avoid in life. I wouldn't call that success by my standards. These are the things that I would run from if you look at that list. Who wants to be beaten? The 40 minus 1, so that was a punishment. And just to make sure they kept the law and they didn't get out of hand in their beatings, they would only go 39, so they didn't miscount. You couldn't accuse them of that. That was 41. So, anyway, he's beaten by by rods, I mean sticks. That hurt. All these things, it's painful. We want to try to avoid these things. And the things that, that we would run away from, the Apostle Paul is running into. Now why? What's compelling him? That's authenticity. Man, you are getting to the core of a person when you see behavior like this. What do they really value? What do they really live for? It takes a lot of training and a lot of little decisions in life about following Christ to, th to get to this point, to be that sold out, that loving of God and those that you witness to. So he looks at his battle scars. Not what he drives or what he flies, but his battle scars. Here's what it can look like when you're a true servant of God or a minister of God. All of these can be found in the book of Acts. I'm not going to look at each of these uh, acts of suffering, but he chronicles them, or they are chronicled in the book of Acts. And <clears throat> these are things that Paul endured. So here's how he starts. All right, if you want to start on equal ground, he starts with the so am I's. You're a Hebrew, so am I. And we know that your lineage is very important with the Jews. Uh, your, your ethnicity, it's very important. And it's something that you can boast about. Who you're closest to or who, your genealogy and so forth. So he basically says when it comes to uh, what he might call the flesh, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with them. They, they have nothing on me in this. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, if you want to get right down to it, the Apostle Paul brings out the big guns and says... Uh, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, not just a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He, he didn't pull those guns out here. He just said, let's just keep it on equal ground. We're, we're cut from the same cloth in that sense. But here's where the big difference takes place. Here's where he leaves the pack behind and goes home by himself. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. So you have the so am I's. Now you have the I am more. When it comes to serving Christ and the extent to which he goes, there is not even a comparison in this. As a matter of fact, I'm not so sure. I don't know anybody that can compare to this list. And I read it and I'm just totally humiliated by this list of what the Apostle Paul has endured in his life to obey, the Christ, to obey Christ in his day and age and the culture that he lived in. I mean, he had suffering. There was no safe place. People he thought, even within Christendom, where he thought it was a safe place. And I, oh, I have, at least I have friends here. No. People from every walk abandoned him. He was persecuted. He was left for dead. He knows hunger pains. He knows scars. So he looks, he makes us frankly all look bad. But where do false prophets or false teachers line up with this? You're not going to find that. The false teachers, you know, they come into town, they get the money, they get the skimmings off the top, and as soon as you, you find out who they really are, next thing you know, they're gone. And Jesus referred to this as well. Who's in it? Why are you in it? It's going to show when the going gets tough. When sacrifices have to be made. Then you find out is the ambition and the drive selfish? Or is it for Christ and God? Now, if you're a believer, you've already begin, begun to experience that tension. Because... Sometimes we have this wrong belief that when you give your life to Christ, everything falls into perfect line and your days of suffering are over because now Jesus is your Lord and He just blesses you. And then you hit hardship and you don't know what happened to God. It wasn't anything that happened to God. It was a misunderstanding of how Christianity works and what it might mean to serve Him. And he warns us throughout the pages of sacred scripture. When you follow me, it's very, very likely you're going to clash with the ways of the world and you're going to suffer. It's a part of it. It's not that you necessarily did. Paul's not like, oh my, where's my sin? Shipwrecked again? What am I doing wrong, God? It's a part of living for Christ. And what it does is it helps us weed out the wrong reasons so that we can be more delighted in God and see how powerful He is. Paul did not bail out after all this. Talk about a worldview 
One of the things that keeps him going with all this suffering is found in Romans 8.18, very uh, common verse. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. So there's another worldview difference. You know, in Christianity, you're going to see people doing things that make no sense in the present, but make perfect sense when you believe that there's a world to come. When you believe that this isn't all there is. And so I'm not so tied to the material things of this world. Actually, they don't really even mean that much to me. And where, when, when all you think is and believe that the world is all there is, you lose your money, you're devastated. What else do you have? You lose your family. Well, I have no reason to live. Well, Christians say, well, wait a minute. That's just here. There's another world Christ went to prepare a place for you. This is just the beginning of eternity. It's not, the story's not over with what comes and goes. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away here. So that, that's a difference in the things that we value and the decisions that we make in life. Now we know one of the reasons that Paul was so ambitious for the Lord. He's like, yeah, this hurts. This, this stinks, to put it in the vernacular. I don't like it. I don't recommend it. But it's not all there is. Man, there is a glory. All this is just pointing to a glory to come. I haven't received it yet. But I will. Yeah, we can sometimes show true believers are servants based on what they suffer. So he puts us to shame. We don't live in this kind of culture. You know what, getting to church for me, I live close. I have yet to face a wild beast. I've yet to have to fight off a wild beast to make it to New Covenant in the morning. We're a very safe culture, in fact. Really safe, right? I mean, we have OSHA to make sure we do everything safe. Don't get up any higher on that stepladder and... Uh, OSHA visited me. I used to be a contractor. Scared me to death. Thought I was going to be taken for everything. OSHA visited me. I was on a commercial job. And I was not privy to OSHA and their ways. I just was there to get the job done and do it right. And they visited me and some guys I had. And my cords were frayed. My electric cords, they, were, they weren't in perfect condition. They weren't the, the right gauge. They didn't have... GFI attached to them, and I mean all the rules and regulations. And so, yeah. But anyway, um, that God worked it out. A little small miracle in my life. I was able to keep practicing. And I learned a lesson. It's very humbling. Uh, I'll tell you the lesson I learned. It's not that I don't use... I probably shouldn't say this. <laughs> not all the safety precautions... Are, are necessary is probably the best way to say it. So I didn't change everything. You know, I used common sense, but I didn't throw everything out. But what I learned is God is a powerful God. Because I went before that board and I, I, could, I could have been fined and gone out of business. But God had the final word in that and I got a warning. So, God is an incredible God, but yeah, that was a form of suffering. You know, it scared me. So, but we don't face these kind of things in our culture. We live in a, in a safe culture. 
I mean, what kind of suffering do we experience here? Nobody's banging on the door. I thought, you know, what, what's some suffering that I've experienced? Well, one thing that just tore me up inside, in, inside and outside, is years ago when I used to show up here first on Sundays, and we had been visited by skunks. And if you're new to this church, you don't know that there were times when skunks would burrow and they, and under the church, and I'd show up early on a Sunday morning, and the whole place stunk to the heavens like skunk. And I'm like, Lord, how are people going to listen to preaching? They're going to come in the door and turn right back around and go home. Who would expose themselves to skunk smell? Well, actually, you. It's you'd come in, and you'd be, smells like skunk. Yeah, we got visited by skunk. And you'd sit down, and we all went home smelling like skunk. And we had skunk, you know when you get skunk in your nose, like even when it's not there, it's still there. You just, everything. We put air fresheners in the return, turned the fans on, and we opened all the doors and everything we could to get it ready. And that's just a very mild form of suffering, that we have had to experience to worship the Lord and sing at the top of your lungs, inhaling skunk. But we do have to give things up in our, in our safe culture. Now, some of you have to give up some of the best friendships you've ever had because you've got to go your separate ways. And hanging out with that same group doesn't work. Jeff uh, Liverman's not here, but at the guys' retreat, he shared about he still gets together on a fairly regular basis with his youth group. When they're 15, 16 years old, they forge the friendship and they still get together and reminisce about their childhood and their youth group. I don't have that. I had to give those friends up because that was a part of my past world that I was destructive in. So I was envious of that. So you that have friends that are like-minded, treasure that. That's something that can live for, for as long as you're on this earth. So we do have to give things up. Sometimes we might have to give a job up. Sometimes we got this great job, but our family is more important. And so i got to leave this job that I'm making more money so that I can be a better shepherd, so I can be a better husband, so I can be a better father. That's a sacrifice. People in the world won't understand that. Because money is God. We suffer. It may be mild, but it hurts. We feel it. I, one of my forms of suffering, if you want to call it, that was um, God calling me to Bible college. Look, I was set on never going to college. I was one of those kids. A nightmare in the classroom if you're a teacher. You're not going to teach me anything. And I was not at all studious. I wanted to work outside with my hands. I rebelled against learning. Boy, did God have another word thing to say about that. I suffered for all the things I didn't learn when I had the opportunity to learn. And I had to go back in college and learn basic English and things like that. But it was hard for me. But that's what I had to do to obey the calling of the Lord. I'm more scared of an exam than a lion. I'd rather face a lion than sit down before an exam. What? Sweating drops of blood. Superlapsarianism. What in the... 
I had to look every word up. So we, we, we have our form. You do, you know. There's things you've given up. Maybe you wrote a, an essay and your teacher was an atheist and it ruined your perfect GPA because you wrote from a Christian perspective. Maybe you take a stand for truth and say, actually, there is objective truth. And you get persecuted or ridiculed for it because there's not supposed to be set truth. We get to make it up and change it in our minds at our own whim. All these things take their toll to commit to God. We give our, our time, we give our resources. Silly Christians give their hard-earned money to the cause of God instead of spending it on themselves. That's a, that's a value call, is it not? We suffer in our service to Christ. If you're down there teaching Sunday school, you are choosing to serve others instead of be up here and, and be served. That's a value call. That's a sacrifice. That's something that you're given for the Lord. You know, if it happens in the line of duty, it all counts to God. My stuff doesn't compare to the Apostle Paul's, but my suffering and your suffering, whatever it is and whatever level, God takes note. He knows it. Your emotions, your pains, your hurt, those hunger pains from fasting, they count. If your ambition is to exalt God, when you do anything for the glory of God, it counts. It's, it's there. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. John 15, 20. So look how the Apostle Paul is measuring spiritual success. That's a different approach. We're not used to that. What a resume. And then lastly, not just his suffering, but his sympathy. And it's, it, it could have come under the category of suffering apart from other things. He doesn't even mention all the ways he suffered. I better stop there before I run out of ink. But apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So not only do you have these culture clashes, you got him floating in the sea. He's, he's hungry, he's cold, he's beaten, he's scarred, he's bloody. And every day he goes to bed and he lays his pillow, his head down or whatever it is there. He even gets to sleep and he wakes up and he wakes up with the same burdens that he carries from the people that he's shared the gospel with. The people that he's ministered to. All of their hurts. This is a little awkward way to say it. Who is weak in verse 29? And I am not weak. Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? It's kind of an awkward way of saying, look, when you suffer, I suffer. When you fall, I fall. I feel it. I'm living in your skin because I love you. And all the burdens that you've come to me with and the things that I've prayed and the things that I've watched happen in your life and the loss and the hardship and the heartache, I feel that because I love you and I care for you. And I carry that in here as well as the scars on the outside. And if you don't think that's hard, you know, pastors, teachers, ministers, no matter, that whenever they stand up and give a message of God's Word, as challenging as that may be, 
It's with the knowledge of however many years they've been ministering, every hardship that ever came across their mind. Any burden that ever came across their mind. That's carried. That's a part of it too. So where's that with the false teachers? Where's that hurt? Where's that pain? So now you see why the Apostle Paul says no. We may be equal here, but when it comes to a true servant of the Lord and somebody who's in it for themselves, oh man, you're going to see them go separate ways. And look what direction I have taken for Christ. It's like labor pains, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Ouch, childbirth, ladies. It hurts. Paul sees ministry in those terms. Also motherhood. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. I'll close with this quote from John MacArthur. A false teacher likes nothing better than to move into a church of weak people and just exploit them. A true shepherd moves into a group of weak people and it becomes the biggest burden of his life. The man felt the pain of the weakness of his churches. He grieved over them. He he agonized over them. He sweat over them, prayed over them, pled over them, wrote them, confronted them, worked with them. That's the daily pressure. Daily. He was burdened daily by the moral and spiritual and doctrinal issues among believers. And it never went away, ever. It was there every day. You know, when one body member of the body suffers, we all suffer. That's the way of the kingdom. So he is striving in his letter to list the facts that just expose the truth because you guys have been hoodwinked and you can't see the obvious anymore. I just want to bring these things up to shake you out of your stupor and look, pull down those strongholds of deception. So those are his credentials by the grace of God. What are ours? May God bless the preaching of His Word.